Well, if you will, open to the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter five. And this morning we are concluding First Peter. I didn't go back and look at when we had started it, but we've been in it for some time. And uh, it's always it's always sad when we come to the the end of a book, uh, especially when, of course, they're all rich. But First Peter, I think, is particularly relevant today when. So many Christians do indeed feel as if they are strangers and sojourners in a foreign land, living in the midst of exile. And here is speaking to believers in these very circumstances. So a very the book for us, including it. Verse fourteen and. Really looking in particular at this final exhortation that Peter has to believers and faithful in the Lord, that despite whatever the fiery trial can't stay passive, but you continue to mock. So let's begin by reading to verse 6. You hear Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, as to the end of this book, given an exhortation by Peter, who writing under the inspiration of 
the Holy Spirit means also this people and you tell them to stand firm. There will be tests. There will be suffering. There will be persecutions. There will be ridicule. Following Christ Paul to take up a cross. And yet you promise that when those crosses come, you will not leave us. But you will strengthen and establish us. And thus, we can go about in faithfulness to Christ. We can fight the good knowing that you have granted the victory in Christ. So I pray for us all this morning that as we heed these words, Lord, that we would not shrink back, not drift away from you, but that we would press on into deeper, greater faithfulness and obedience to Christ. We would stand firm in the face of the devil that you would strengthen us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you, probably most of you, are familiar with the life of Martin Luther, one of the great reformers of the Protestant Reformation during the 15th and 16th centuries. Of course, Luther is well known for his recovery, if you will, of the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. We are not justified before God on the basis of our works, but on the basis of the finished work of Christ that we receive by faith. But for this gospel, for these teachings, for his opposition to and intent to reform the Catholic Church. He faced many trials, much opposition, threats to his life. Very famously, he faced the very real possibility of what is known as the Diet of Worms. Without getting into all of the details and the circumstances that led up to this moment, this was essentially a a time when Luther was brought before the Holy Roman Emperor and was ordered to recant everything he had written. Renounce the gospel that he had come to believe in and, and taught others and led others to. Renounce the gospel that at one point in his Life, he said, when he discovered it, when he came to realize how a person is right before God, as if the gates of heaven had opened to him. It's order to recant that. And if he did not recant, he faced certain death. That was his prospect. So this decision is, is brought before him. He asks for a day to consider how he's going to respond. And after that day of consideration, Luther eventually 
goes before the emperor and goes before all the others who are there, the, the people in public, the, the teachers and priests who are opposing him. He stands before them all and he said before the emperor, he said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And Luther was faced with the trial that could result in the death penalty. What does he do? He stands firm and he places his feet firmly on the Word of God. He acknowledges, even in the face of death, that it would be unsafe to do otherwise. That the safest decision in this moment is to stand on the gospel of Christ and to entrust himself, to entrust the outcome of this decision ultimately into the hands of God, whatever the outcome in a similar way, at the end of the book of 1 Peter, Peter's final charge to Christians throughout Asia Minor, and of course a final charge to us these many years later, is that in the midst of the trials that will inevitably come for following Christ, we likewise are to stand firm, immovable on the gospel of Christ. In his closing farewell, he concludes his letter with some fairly standard remarks in these final greetings. He gives an update on where he is and who is with him. He says that, that he's in Babylon. She who is in Babylon sends her greetings to you. This is a symbolic reference to the city of Rome. Peter's in Rome at this Moment, he's with Mark, he says, the author of the second gospel. He calls it his son, probably indicating that Peter led him to faith in Christ. He's with his companion, Silvanus, who is acting here as his amanuensis. So he, he, he writes the letters down for Peter. Peter dictates what he wants written. Silvanus writes it. The letter is but he also here gives a he says in verse 12 by Silvanus a faithful brother as I regard him I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God stand firm in it once these Christians who he's already Knowledge throughout the letter are enduring all kinds of trials and 
persecution, he's charging them as his last words to them, stand firm in the grace of God. When they are suffering, when they are tempted to depart from the faith, they are to stand firm. And of course, the the whole letter really unpacks this final charge in more detail. But it's, it's also the case that these closing verses that we're in, particularly from verse 6 to 11, teach us what it means to stand firm in the grace of God. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning. Is Peter calling Christians to do when he calls us to stand firm, how are we to go about doing this thing? There will be three points this morning. And the first is that Christians are to stand firm, first of all, by humbly trusting in God. Humbly trusting in God. Look with me again at what Peter writes, beginning in verse 6 to 7. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. It's here that we begin, first of all, with a command. Humble yourselves. This is His charge. To them. You are to humble yourselves. And then this command is followed by a purpose or an intended result to this self-humiliation. He says, so that at the proper time, when, when God has determined at the proper time, He may exalt you. And then we come to the means. How do I humble myself? What does it look like to humble myself under the mighty hand of God? And notice, Peter says, it is by casting all your anxieties on Him. You humble yourself, at least in part, By casting all your anxieties, your worries on God. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment about this. What is the opposite of humility? It's pride, right? And Peter, Peter himself makes that comparison in verse 5. When he, when he says, God gives grace to the humble, He opposes the proud. Right? Those are your, your opposites. You're either one who is full of pride or you're one who is humble. Now, if casting your anxieties, your worries on God is at least in part what it looks like to humble yourself, What does it look like? What does it mean when you are full of worry? Full of anxiety? And holding on to those 
means you're full of pride. That's the implication. Worrying fundamentally a pride problem. Now, I don't think we often think of it like that. I alluded to this last week, but especially because of the pervasive influence of therapeutic approaches to counseling, anxiety is often reduced to and justified as an uncontrollable physical problem that just has to be dealt with through medication. And I don't want you to misunderstand or mishear me here. I am not in any way denying that anxiety can have real physical effects on the body. It most certainly can. I just want to get to the heart of the matter here. I want to get to the spiritual root of this. Because Peter is telling us that we have to humble ourselves by casting all of our anxieties on God, the opposite of which is living in sinful pride. So what's going on here? How is my anxiety How is all of my worrying a pride issue? Well, I want to illustrate with really a personal confession. I shared this with you before, particularly when we were looking at the importance of prayer in the church. But there have been challenges that have come up here at the church that have caused me to be full of worry. We are, of course, a small church, and we have had some major expenses that have come up, things that have needed repair. They have caused me to worry a great deal, so much so that I do not even have to be specifically thinking about those particular matters, and yet they're always there. It's like a constant burden or load that follows me wherever I go. It's a dark cloud that's like in the cartoons that's just constantly raining on you wherever you walk. The uncertainty is constant. That's how anxiety can grab hold of someone and and follow them wherever they go, even again, if you're not specifically thinking about it. It's there. Through all this anxiety and and worry, what, what is really going on in my heart, I'm doubting. I'm doubting the goodness of God and I'm doubting the providential hand of God. I'm questioning His ways. I'm questioning what the purpose is 
behind me. Deep down, thinking to myself, if I were running the universe, this kind of thing would never happen. What's the purpose of this? Lord, I can see no reason why this issue has come up. Why don't you fill the pews? Why don't you increase the budget to a million dollars to where these kinds of issues are nothing more than tiny little pebbles on the way rather than giant boulders? If I'm honest, that's where my heart tends to go. This makes no sense. I wouldn't do things like this. You see, I have no knowledge of the future. I have no knowledge of the divine purposes of God. I have no knowledge of His sanctifying work in my life. What He's doing in particular and in your lives. I have no knowledge as to the why of it all. Pride am led to worry. It is pride that boils over into sinful anxiety because I do not know the exact ways of God whose ways I mentally acknowledge are far higher than my own. It's pride that's at the root of anxiety. And if it's not checked, if it's not repented of, it can lead you down a dark path of sinful rebellion, of disobedience, and eventually apostasy. It's not without purpose that when Peter commands Christians here to humble yourselves, he says we are to do so under the mighty hand of God. This is intentional. This phrase is intentional to remind us of the saving works of God in the Old Testament particularly people of Israel at the Exodus and in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 11, Moses says that it was the great power and the mighty hand of God that brought them out of Egypt. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, as Moses is explaining to the people of Israel why they are to keep the Sabbath, He says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It is the mighty hand of God that works salvation for His people. God, by His mighty hand, had clearly demonstrated His good intentions for the people of Israel to bring them into their promised inheritance in the land of 
Canaan. He had shown His goodness to them by that hand. Yet, how did the people of Israel respond to it? Humble themselves under it? By no means. Were they confident and trusting in God and in His goodness towards them? Of course not. The moment they faced any kind of adversity, and mind you, way worse adversity than probably most of us have faced. Hunger. Thirst. Being in the midst of a hot wilderness. Walking through it day after day. But the moment they faced these kinds of adversity, the moment they could not grab hold of what God had promised to give them immediately, they began to complain and grumble. even went so far as to accuse him of wanting to kill them. You, you, you saved us. Your mighty hand, your outstretched arm brought us out of Egypt to kill us in the wilderness. They were fearful. They worried that there would be no bread for them to eat the next day. And so they immediately concluded that God must want them miserable. It's desire to see them dead. They were full of pride and worry. And it led them down that dark spiritual path of idolatry, immorality, apostasy. It led them to other gods who indeed were false and yet who would lead them into all kinds of wickedness and ultimately death. Later in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 2 and 3, God through Moses explains why he calls them to hunger and thirst just a little. Why He brought them through periods of testing. Moses spoke to the people of Israel and said, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that He might humble you. He can see in the heart. He sees what's there. Primary concern is not providing them an inheritance on their timetable. The primary concern is that they would worship Him from their heart. And their hearts are full of pride. And so what does He do? He, he brings them into the wilderness to humble them. Testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger 
and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word which comes from the mouth of the Lord. You live by faith. You live by heeding and taking in the Word of God, and even when you cannot make sense of the world, you cling to it. You have that Abraham-like faith that to the world makes no sense. Abraham receives a promise. He's going to give you an offspring. Your barren wife is going to have a child. Through this offering, all the nations will be blessed. Abraham believes it. And then a day comes. Is Abraham in a wilderness? To test him. Commandment. Offer this promised son as a sacrifice. How do you square that together? God made a promise. This son is the one who's going to bring blessings to the nations and he's telling me to kill him. Well, you've got to have some sort of... And that's what the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham reasoned such, he had such confidence in God that he reasoned that even if Isaac is offered as a sacrifice, God can raise him from the dead. It doesn't make sense on the outside, but it does if you understand who God is. He's a God who can raise the dead. He's the maker of heaven and earth. You live by every word which comes from his mouth. When we worry, when we are full of anxiety, we are in our sinful pride following the example of the wilderness generation and we are not following Christ and trusting in him and in his word. So as Peter gives a closing exhortation to Christians who are presently in the midst of suffering, who are in the midst of a wilderness, who are facing all kinds of fiery trials, he's reminding them and reminding us, you must humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will save you. He will do good to you. Those are his intentions. That will not be revoked. You humble yourself under that word. And at the proper time, He will exalt you. It is not for you to know the exact reasons why events and circumstances unfold the way they do. No, the the trials that grieve you for a little while, as Peter said, in chapter 1, verse 7, are, again, to be reminded, are so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that 
perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those grievous trials are serving eternal purposes for your good. So you entrust yourself to the mighty hand of Cast your worrying away. Pluck up the sinful root of pride. And humble yourself before God and He will exalt you. Now, Peter also says, secondly, that Christians are to stand firm by resisting the devil. Christians stand firm by resisting the devil. Look with me again at verse 8. He says, be sober-minded. Think clearly. Think rationally. Think biblically about the world, about your life. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. It's a term that we've, we've seen before is a, a metaphor being constant in prayer. You, you watch by being always in prayer. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring seeking someone to devour. And then in verse 9, we see what Peter means by the devil prowling around and devouring people. He says, resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Prowling around and devouring work of the devil is explained as the thing that is causing the universal suffering of Christians, of the brotherhood around the world. In other words, the persecutions that Christians are facing, the social isolation, that they are facing. The beating, the deaths, fiery trials are the work of the devil in the world. Now, we must remember that the devil is a very real being. We are not anti-supernaturalists. We ought not to, to shrink back with some sort of secular fear of this. We are, as Christians, those who believe in the supernatural and the reality of the devil and Satan. There is a real spiritual battle that is at work in the world and the devil is at the head. But we must also remember that the devil is not a divine being. There is not a battle between two beings of equal power, namely God and the devil in some dualistic contest, and we just hope God wins out. No, the devil is a created being. And the only power he has to cause destruction and chaos is a power that is measured, restrained, and serves the good purposes of God. We saw an example of that earlier in Job. In other words, devil can never act apart from the sovereignty 
of God. It is in his heart only to destroy. Jesus said of the devil that he was a murderer from the beginning. It is pure evil. But in the same way that God in his sovereignty can use and direct the hearts of wicked men and kings and emperors and nations to carry out his good purposes and they are fully responsible and accountable for their choices in the same way that it was predetermined according to God's will that Christ would be crucified as an atonement for His people, and yet the men who carried out that wicked deed were fully accountable, fully responsible for what they did to the Son of God, so also is God fully sovereign over the devil, and yet the devil is fully liable for all of his malicious work. That needs to be said. The devil does do real evil. And not a single work is ever done apart from the good sovereign hand of God. The devil acts. He acts, of course, wickedly. He deceives. He influences the minds of men to do his bidding in a very real sense. He rules over the hearts of wicked men. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says that those who are apart from Christ, who don't know Christ, follow the prince of the power of the air, a reference to the devil. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says of those who reject the gospel, he says in their case, the God of this world blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Similarly, in Luke chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus is explaining the parable of the sower and the seeds, He speaks of some people who hear the gospel and they immediately reject it. And He says of them that the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. In John chapter 13, verse 2, John says that the devil put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. He entered into Judas. In Luke 22, verse 31, Satan demanded to have Peter that he might sift him like wheat. But that didn't happen. And that didn't happen. Why? Because Jesus interceded on behalf of Peter, one of his sheep. And he said to Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Jesus interceded for Peter. That is the only reason why Peter's faith did not fail and Judas abandoned Christ. The devil, he killed, he 
influences. He directs ungodly men to carry out His will. Here in our text, His devouring works are described as those that are bringing suffering to Christians throughout the world. He is putting it into the hearts of unbelievers, of emperors, governors, soldiers, merchants, pagans, Jews, you name it. He's putting it into their hearts to persecute Christians. And the unbelievers, because their hearts are already bent towards evil, gladly do His will. They will never say no to the one they delight to follow. So Peter says, you must resist the devil. And how do you do that? He says you must remain firm in your faith. That when that onslaught comes, you remain firm in your faith. You cannot waver. You are not to backslide and and go backwards. You cannot throw in the towel and say, this whole business of Christianity, this pursuit of righteousness and holiness, this trusting in Christ and following Him, it's, it's too costly. It's requiring too much. I can't do it anymore. It has brought me too much pain. I just want to live my life how I please with no trouble from anyone. No, it's not an option. That's surrendering to the devil. It's raising the white flag. You must press on and resist. No matter how daunting the giants of Canaan seem, you go forward in the battle, you remain firm and faithful, you continue to trust, you continue to obey. And God will give you the victory. Ultimately. Which leads us to our last point. Christians stand firm because God will strengthen them. You stand firm because God will strengthen you. Peter says again in verses 10 to 11, he says, And after you have suffered a little, when you have been tested, in other words, when you have gone through refining trial, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. There are three points about God that are especially relevant here. One is that Peter says the God of all grace. God of all grace. That is, every kind of grace there is. Every work of grace comes from Him. It is the grace of God that saves you in the beginning. That saves you at first. It is the grace of, the, of God that 
continues to work in you in a sanctifying manner to make you more like Christ. It is the grace of God that seals you with the promised Holy Spirit guaranteeing you eternal life in the day of redemption to come. And it is the grace of God that will bring you to glory. That's one thing. Second, God is the one, Peter says, who calls you to His eternal glory in Christ. What theologians call an effectual calling. This this calling of God is not some general call that goes out to everyone and that some resist and some receive. No, this call here is a call that affects a result. It brings about its intended end. It accomplishes that outcome. God, by this call, brings you to His eternal glory in Christ. This is the same kind of call, same kind of word that He uses to create the world in the beginning. He says in the very beginning, let there be light. That's His call in creation. And what happens? There is light. It is a call that affects the very words that are spoken. And in the same way, God carries out that power within the hearts of believers when He says to their hearts, let light shine out of darkness. And in the darkness of that heart, the darkness of that soul, light shines. New life begins. That's the kind of calling that Peter is referring to here. He calls you out of darkness and into light. He calls you out of damnation and into glory, which means that God will never lose you. Those who are His will remain His forever. He calls you into His eternal glory. And then third, that dominion, all rule, all authority belongs to God. The devil, by contrast, possesses all dominion. The powers on earth, the nations, the rulers, those who wield the sword do not possess all dominion and authority. All authorities exist as authorities who are subservient to the will of God and He and He alone rules over all of them. Now, particularly as various trials are faced, these are especially important truths to remember because it means that there is no trial that comes upon you that's accidental. There is no suffering brought upon Christians by the emperor whose God, who God's sovereign hand is not over. Working His purposes in and through. There's no difficulty or even great sufferings, whether they be external or internal, whether they're matters of health 
any matters that are ever surprises to God. There are no men, no malicious spiritual powers that can do anything to you apart from the mighty hand of God. It means that those who truly trust in Christ and who are born again will never finally fall away. And it means that there is no supply of grace that will ever be withheld from you. If you are disciples of Christ, no matter how great the evil or how daunting the trial is that comes to you, you can be absolutely confident that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. God will never leave or forsake you. Rather, what Peter says, He will establish, strengthen you. And so he says, you stand firm and resist and God will firm you up and establish So, what does this look like then, practically, for us as we're thinking about these glorious truths? Well, it means on the one hand that the Christian walk is very much one that requires effort and hard work on our part. We, we do not trust, of course. We trust in works for our salvation, not by any means, but we are called to work out our salvation, to exercise it. Must, in your resistance of the devil and the flesh, utilize all the means that God has given to you and it's placed at your disposal. You must pray. Be watchful. That's, that's an exercise of the will. That's the utilization of the mind and the heart. That's a determination. Set aside a moment and pray. You, you, you have to do that. You must overcome the temptation to live your life apart. From prayer. You must devour the Word of God. Again, exercising your mind and your heart. You must obey His commands. You must show hospitality when your flesh would rather isolate. Right? These are decisions that you are having to make day by day and week after week. Abstain from sexual immorality when lust begins to rage. You must fight and work it out. Like the Israelites in the days of Joshua, you must cross the border into Canaan. You have to take up a sword. God makes the promise. This land is your inheritance. I'm giving the peoples into your hands. That's the promise. But then you've got to you got to pick up the sword and take up the shield and run through the field and, and sweat and get hot and get bruised and bloodied and fight. And God will give you the victory. You have to put forth effort. The Christian life is not one that is marked by passive drifting. It is climb to the mountain of Zion 
and when you drift down the mountain, you got to march up the hill. But you always remember that you don't march up the hill and you never go into battle alone. God goes before you. Again, just as in the wilderness, just as in the entrance to the promised land, God goes before His people and He dwells in the midst of His people. You don't fight alone. You fight knowing that you're always fighting in the power and the strength of the Lord. You work out and you exercise your salvation knowing that it is God who is working in you. Both to will and to do according to His good purpose. He has saved us by His grace. We are, as Paul says, His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God beforehand that we should walk in them. The, the efforts, the, the works, the obedience is like taking the shoe that God has made and placing it on the feet and walking. God has made these works, made these times and trials for us to walk in them and He promises He will be there. and He will strengthen and establish the guarantee that we have because all of the graciousness of God and His promises is that if we fight, we stand firm, He will bring us into His glory. He will keep us in place and He will establish us in our firm stand. Amen? Let's go to the Lord. Father, when you called us out of the darkness and into the light of Christ, you promised your people that there would be challenges, crosses, reminded in this passage and in so many others that you do not leave us. And that even when we fail and stumble and fall and sin, You are a just and righteous and faithful God who will forgive us of our sin. And even when the devil tempts us, when we are assaulted by his schemes, reminded of the works that You did on behalf of Peter, we have an intercessor in Christ who prays for us that our faith may not fail. And so, Lord, we are grateful for the assurance that we have that You will keep us. But we pray that this will not lead us into passivity, but rather we would be those who take a firm stand and march up to the upward course of God in Christ Jesus. 
will arrive finally in Mount Zion to see you face to face. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.